on your outline if you got one of those uh, handouts. We're returning to our sermon series in Hebrews. We've been away for a couple of weeks from that. So we come now to Hebrews 10, verse 26 through 31 today. This passage grows out of the previous passage that we looked at last time, which was uh, 19 to 25. With that passage that we looked at last time, we moved from, we, we saw that that was where the transition occurs from the part of Hebrews that declares to us the excellence of Christ to the part of Hebrews that tells us how we should respond to the excellence of Christ. So there's kind of two main divisions in most of the epistles where you have the section that declares to us the grace of God and what he has done. And then you have a section that says, this is what you ought to do in response to that. So we've come into that, that part of Hebrews now, showing us how we are to respond to him. In short, we saw that in that section that since Christ, by his saving work, has given us access to God so that we can have communion with the living God, then we ought to come near. If we've got access, we should come. We should come near to God with boldness, resting in the work that Jesus has done, and the sanctifying of His blood and cleansing that we have through Him. And we ought to hold our confession without wavering. We're challenged in our confession. People will say it's false, and we need to hold on and continue on in our confession. And we saw that we ought to consider one another to help each other to go on with Him, to stir each other up to love and to good works. And it's very important for us to do that. In order to do this, we saw in verse 25 that we need to be faithful about assembling for church where these things especially happen. Now, we do these things other times too, but especially in the assembly of God's people do these things that we're called to do, uh, drawing near to God with boldness, Uh, holding on to our confession, declaring what we believe and and affirming that, and considering each other to stir up love and good works. So it's it's clear that our text today that we come to, Hebrews 10, 26-31, flows out from the previous one. It ties in directly with this. You can see that with the word for that is used. It begins with the word for. So it's looking back to what was in that previous paragraph. Paragraph. It's a warning about rejecting the beautiful way of Christ that is described in verse 19 through 25 and that's been described through all the previous uh, wor- words of Hebrews. The beautiful way that He has opened for us by which we have communion with God. There is a real danger, as we have seen along the way going through Hebrews, that we would begin to drift away from that. We begin to lose our interest in Christ, our focus on Christ, and it could even lead to the place of where we utterly renounce Christ, as this letter tells us. Now, if someone does that, it shows that they never really knew Him in a saving way, because if they did, then they would continue. But you see, we make professions, and sometimes that profession is not actually a genuine profession. You know, Jesus, when people believed in Him, 
did not entrust himself to them because he knew what was in man. He knew that many of them were just coming because they were excited about the miracles and they, they saw it with their own eyes. Of course, they believed it. And they, they came and said, well, we're going we're gonna to latch on to this guy. He's going to lead us into great things. And they said, wait, what is he doing? I don't like where he's leading us. And they were out of there. And Jesus knew that. And so that's the kind of thing that happens in every church. You have people that come in, they're excited, they profess, and then they don't, they don't continue. So this letter is written to those who are in danger of doing that. We know that the Hebrews were struggling because they were being persecuted constantly by their fellow Hebrews, fellow Jews, and there was pressure on them. And, you know, they, they had the true God in their, from the Old Testament that in the ordinances that he had given them. And there was a temptation. Let's go back to that and we won't have all this pressure on us. Maybe we can even take Jesus with us back into that system. You know, there, there was different kinds of pressures that they were facing. And he's warning them, like, don't, don't go away from Christ. This passage sets before us the atrocity of going away from Christ. The atrocity of, of drifting away from him, even to the point where we renounce him and no longer go on with him. It's, it talks about what a terrible thing that is. So listen as I read the passage to you, and you'll see that. Hebrews 10, 26 through 31. This is the holy word of God. It says, For if we sin willfully after we have received the knowledge, the true knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation which will devour the adversaries. Anyone who has rejected Moses' law dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Of how much worse punishment do you suppose will he be thought worthy who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing and insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And here we end the reading of God's word. These are frightful words, aren't they? How atrocious it is to reject Christ and the beautiful way that he has opened by which we may come to God. They are frightful words, but they are wholesome words. They are words that need to be taken to heart, not ignored because they're frightful or because they're hard words. It is true that those who know Christ in a saving way will not depart from him. But it is also true that one of the ways that God preserves those who truly know him is by giving us passages like this one that warn us and that if we are true believers and God's spirit is truly working in us in a saving way, we will respond to those warnings. That's how he keeps us. Just as when he brought us in to start with, what did he do? He brought the gospel to us and we believed unto salvation. He didn't just save us without bringing the gospel that was to be believed. Well, so in the same way, he promises to preserve us. How does he preserve us? He doesn't just do it like we're, we're, we're put up in a, a preservative jar or something. He works in us in a dynamic way and he brings warnings and instruction and things like that to us that we receive if we truly are his elect people. Just as we initially receive the gospel, 
we go on receiving those warnings so that we don't depart from Him. We receive the promises too. We receive all that God has for us that, that, that helps us to continue in Him. So th- this is very, very wholesome, these kind of words. We need to take heed to them. It also, reminders about the atrocity of rejecting Christ also help us to be useful to others. Because when you see what an atrocious thing it is to depart from Christ, it burdens you for those around you. If you see someone drifting, you, you don't want them to drift because you see what a, what a, what a horrendous thing that is. And you, you want to go to them. You want to, you want to restore them and do whatever you can to encourage them. If you see somebody that's having a hard time in their walk, you want to go and, and, and strengthen them and build them up. With your children, you want, to, you want to minister to them and help them because you see, this is a serious thing. We don't want anyone to depart from the Lord. And also, it encourages us to bring the gospel to people that are outside, that they can come in and have the, the rich blessings that, that we have. And so I urge you to take heed to these wholesome words today, frightful though they be. The Lord has been kind enough to give them to us and they will greatly benefit us if we truly take them to heart. So in this text, the atrocity of rejecting Christ is presented to us in three ways. You can see the main points in the outline. Rejecting Christ is atrocious because it leaves you entirely without hope. That's the first thing we'll look at. Second, rejecting Christ is atrocious because it is such a wicked thing to do. It's just wrong. It's like something that no one should ever do. And third, rejecting Christ is atrocious because it will incur God's most severe vengeance. So this is what is set before us in our text. Now let's look at the first of these. Rejecting Christ is atrocious because it leaves you entirely without hope. This is set forth in the first two verses, 26 and 27. For if we sin willfully after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation which will devour the adversaries. This makes sense, does it not? We have seen in this epistle that Christ is the way of salvation. The beautiful and only way. We are all guilty of sin and we need a way of salvation. We're guilty in Adam who rebelled, representing the whole human race against God. We made ourselves adversaries of God. But God sent His only Son to save us from our sins. That's the reason that Jesus is called Jesus. It means the Lord is salvation. He came from heaven to be our priest, taking human flesh, taking a human spirit, and He lived without sin as a man. Then He made sacrifice to atone for our sin by giving Himself as a sacrifice. Now He is reigning at God's right hand as our priest, where He exerts His power to gather His people together to His precious salvation and exerts His power to keep them by the working of His Spirit. He brings us, the fallen race of Adam, brings members of that fallen race back to God. 
what a change ensues. We who were guilty without God, without a way, and without hope, are fully restored to God forever, to His favor, to His blessing, to His service, to communion or fellowship with God. And that fellowship that will be fully realized when we see Him at the last day. We're brought from eternal condemnation to eternal blessing. But obviously, if we reject this way of salvation, what do we have? Is there another way of salvation? Of course there is not. What else will we, where else will we find a sacrifice like this that can take away our sins? Where else can we find a divine Savior who is willing to save us if it's not Jesus? Where will we find a Savior who is able to transform us so that we might be fit to live with God in eternity? As it says from the middle of verse 26, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. There's not another alternative here. You can't go back to those Old Testament sacrifices or some other sacrifice. Now that Jesus has been manifested and revealed, there is no other place to go. There no longer remains a sacrifice for sin, but a certain fearful expectation of judgment and fire indignation, which will devour the adversaries. How awful the thought of being destitute. Destitute and without hope. Of having no way to escape. Of having no place to turn. I remember hearing a sermon long ago when I was a young Christian that about the, from Ephesians, where it says that they're without hope, without God in the world. And the preacher really drove home what it is to be without hope. Like that's just such ominous words. There's no hope. There's no recourse. It's not going to get better. That's what happens if we reject Christ. That's what happens when we go before God's judgment at the last day. There's nothing. There's no hope. There's no recourse. It's all over. It's gone. It's not going to get better. There's not a not going to say, oh, well, this will all be over soon. It will not. To have only the certain prospect of judgment, as it says here, and fiery indignation that devours God's adversaries, his enemies who who reproach him, who who are set against him. We are all enemies of God. Because we've overthrown His government. It's high treason. He's the Most High God. And we're enemies of Him by nature until we're restored in Christ. Without Christ, there's no restoration. You're a committed enemy. What could be worse than to be God's enemy and to be without salvation, without hope? This is dreadful. But what is the sin? We need to be clear. What is the sin that is described here? If we sin willfully after we receive the knowledge of truth. We need to be clear about what this sin involves. Surely there is not a one of us that can say that we have not sinned, even even when we knew better, since we came to to know Christ. I mean, who could say, oh yeah, yeah, that's me, I I haven't haven't sinned. Never never sinned deliberately ever since I came to Christ. It's always been like, sometimes I stumble, but I've never done anything deliberately against God. In my first year... As a believer, when I was in university, I was shown this text by a cult. And they told me that if I had sinned since my baptism, I was no true Christian. And that I could only look for a 
fiery indignation that would devour the adversaries, and that uh, I needed to receive true baptism, which they would minister to me, and knowing the truth that if we sin after we've been baptized, then, there's, then, then we're done. And I would come in knowing that truth, and then I would have the true salvation. And as a young believer, I didn't really buy into all that they were saying in terms of their group and everything. But this passage, this text disturbed me. I spent sleepless nights. Lord, what does this mean? It says if we sin willfully... After we've come to a knowledge of truth, there's no more sacrifice. What, what does this mean? And it was very disturbing to me. Of course, I asked people, but their answers, I wasn't, I wasn't able to fully embrace what they said. I was still haunted by it for, for a period of time. So this passage is one that's very familiar to me. I knew that I had sinned on purpose since coming to Christ. And this group said I needed to be baptized to be truly saved by them because they held the truth of God's word. Now, over time... I came to understand what these words mean. They're not speaking of merely sinning voluntarily. They speak of a settled, malicious, obstinate renunciation of Christ. It's the sin of renouncing Christ that is in view here. They speak of the sin of rejecting Him. Now that may be done by a particular sin. Uh, some sin that you desire that, you know, I don't want to serve God anymore because I want to live in an immoral relationship with someone that would be forbidden by God. I'm going to, I'm done with God. I'm going to go and do this. It, It could be on occasion of something like that. But you turn away from God's salvation. And it's not just talking about a temporary rejection of Him either, which can happen. The Lord, you know, from, it it happens from a a rejection that is from a settled disposition of your heart. In other words, you are committed to this rejection. It's, it's not something that you just fall into. We all sin in many ways. But this is the sin of deliberate departure from Christ. I walk with Him no more. I'm going to walk in another way. Note well that this was after coming to a knowledge of the truth. The word translated knowledge here is a strong word for knowledge. There's different words in Greek for knowledge. And this one is epinosis. You probably know the word gnosis, like Gnostic. We get that word from knowledge. It talks about uh, knowledge. It's, this is, epinosis is a strengthened form of gnosis. And sometimes it's translated true knowledge, or something like that. It refers to knowledge that is obtained by the mind and that gives the person having that knowledge an intimate understanding of what they know of the subject. Those who have come to a knowledge of the truth, as it's described here, have received the gospel, now this is important, with conviction that it is true. In other words, they come and say, yeah, I know that this is true. What it it says about Jesus and everything. They have made an outward profession of faith, believing it to be true, they have some, so they're not just people that saw miracles and were looking for something else from those miracles that Jesus was going to do. These are people that understood why Jesus came, what his ministry was to save us from our sin, that he was the only way of salvation. And they came and said, I believe. They made a profession of faith. They have some sense of the power and the excellence of the gospel that brings them to embrace it. But then at some point, 
They repudiate it all. Here is how Matthew Henry describes it. And the way he describes it is similar to you know, John Owen, Robert Martin, uh, lots of other people. The sin here mentioned, Henry says, is a total and final apostasy, departing from Christ. When men with a full and fixed will and resolution despise and reject Christ the only Savior, despise and resist the Spirit the only Sanctifier, and despise and renounce the Gospel the only way of salvation in the words of eternal life. And all this after they have known, owned, and professed the Christian religion and continue to do so, continue to resist it, obstinately and maliciously. This is the great transgression the Apostle seems to refer to the law concerning presumptuous sinners here. Numbers 15, 30-31, where it talks about a sin that there was no sacrifice for. They were to be cut off in the Old Testament. And so it is those who reject Christ, who renounce Him, are to be cut off. It is then the rejection of the truth once believed about Jesus Christ. I have summarized it in this sermon simply as rejecting Christ. So this is a summary that is warranted by the parallel summary of what people did when they sinned in the Old Covenant. What did they do? It says they rejected Moses. So in the New Covenant, what we do is we reject Christ. And so that sums up this whole sin that is being talked about here as the context shows. Those who rejected Moses, those who reject Christ, you see, is parallel to that. Now, this brings us to a second way of rejecting Christ, uh, or a second way that rejecting Christ is shown to be atrocious. The second thing we're looking at, rejecting Christ is atrocious because it is such a wicked thing to do. Okay, so we saw that it leaves us without hope. That's an atrocious thing. And now we see that the act itself is reprehensible. It is a sinful, wretched, wrong thing, reprehensible thing to do. Look at verse 28 and 29. Anyone who has rejected Moses' law dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. That was monstrous to reject Moses' law. Verse 29. Of how much worse punishment do you suppose will he be thought worthy who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing, and insulted the Spirit of grace? That is even more monstrous. Bad enough to reject Moses, worse to reject Christ. Brothers and sisters, we need to consider what a great wickedness it is to reject our dear Lord so that we will abhor this sin as we ought. We are every one of us guilty to some degree or another of pulling away from Him at various times and in various ways and to various degrees. Sometimes we are pretty hard toward our Lord, are we not? There are many things we do that separate us from Him in our affection for Him, in our service to Him, in our commitment to Him as our, as our precious Savior. So we're not unacquainted with the idea of pushing Christ off. Now, it can be illustrated with marriage where we talk about the different degrees. Jesus said not to separate what God has joined together. 
And he was talking ultimately about divorce, where there's a complete severance of that relationship. Well, but also, you see, we can talk about separating what God has joined together by the way that we treat our spouse. Every day I do things that drive away, that drive a wedge and separate. And every day, hopefully, I do things that draw together. But you see, we're, we're constantly involved in this thing of pushing away our sin and pulling together as we come near in a, in a godly way. So, so it is with Christ. We do the same thing with Him. And you see, yes, we should, we should be therefore ashamed and deeply humbled by such wretched conduct as would push Christ off in any way whatsoever. We need to cast ourselves on Him for every hard thought that we have toward Him, for every denial that we have had, for every resistance to His will, even for lightly esteeming Him, not looking at Him as someone that's important. Thank the Lord that if if you have not permanently renounced Him and pushed Him off, as this passage talks about, that you've not renounced Him as described in our passage, that it's such an abhorrent thing to do. But let, let it come through to you that any resistance to Him is an aspect of this sin that we need to abhor, that we need to see how wretched that is. This passage is meant to help us to abhor this sin of rejecting Christ, pushing Him away, much more than we do. It's to show us how horrendous a thing it is. So in our text, the wickedness of this sin is set forth in these two verses we're looking at now in three ways. First, that it involves, it's wretched because it involves a wicked action. And then the second thing we'll look at is it involves a wretched evaluation. And the third thing is that it involves a insulting or a personal affront. So let's look at these. First, that it involves a wicked action, trampling underfoot the Son of God. Think of that. Be appalled by that. Here is the kindest, most gracious friend of all. The one who did what every fiber of his being abhorred, taking on our sin and being rejected by his father on account of what we did for our sake. Setting himself forward to be charged with all of our iniquities and to bear our punishment that we might be restored to the father. This is what he did. He took us ruined and defiled to be his bride. He paid our debt in full. There is no greater love than that a man should lay down his life for his friends and that he should do it when it refers to eternal life and eternal punishment. He came to us then with the sweet offer of the gospel, even pleading with us to come to him to be saved. He sent his servants out to plead with people to come and be reconciled to God through Christ. And when we did come, he welcomed us 
and took us in and he spoke comforting words of grace and assurance to us and provided for us everything that we need to continue in his grace. Christian fellowship, the word of the scriptures, the Holy Spirit, enabling grace, assurance of his love. We can go on and on of how kind he has been. He bears with us in our ongoing sin and weakness. He's patient with us. He has compassion on us. He understands our temptations and our struggles. And He comes to us with compassion and ministry to help us and bring His grace to us in our time of need. If He didn't do that, we would all of us be completely hardened against God by now. To reject Him is to trample this one underfoot. Robert Martin says, as used here, the expression tread underfoot describes treating with the utmost disrespect something which one regards as valueless. The apostate is guilty of scorning the Son of God, though once he professed to hold him in highest honor. So you see, this, this can be described as, as it was earlier in Hebrews as crucifying him again. You're going to deliver him up to the cross with contempt when you reject him. To treat this gracious, holy, majestic Savior as an object of abhorrence. What could be a greater sin than this? What does this sin deserve? I say learn to abhor the very, any, any kind of rejection of Christ. It's too much in our lives. Abhor it. Rejecting involves this wretched trampling of him underfoot. That's the first thing. Second, it involves a wretched evaluation. Counting, evaluating the blood of the covenant, a common or an ordinary thing, is to look at that blood that was shed for the remission of sins, that blood that was poured out, that high cost of redemption that alone can atone for sin, and to count it as rubbish, to count it as ordinary, something that is not significant. To look at it as Paul looked at his own works once he came to know Christ. He said they're rubbish, dung, worthless, of no value. That is what the apostate thinks when he renounces Christ. That the precious blood that was shed for sins, that's what he thinks of that blood. That's what he thinks of the blood that will never lose its power to save. This is the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified. Now, you might have a question here, by which who was sanctified? It can be taken two ways. Either Christ, by which he was sanctified as our Savior, or the person that comes to him who is sanctified by the blood of the covenant. If it refers to Christ who is sanctified, then it means that His blood is what sets Him apart, His sacrifice apart from all others. It is the blood of the covenant. He is a priest that is set apart from all others as the only priest that can take away our sins. If it refers to the individual who professes, it speaks of how the blood of the covenant is the offering by which we come to God. We are sanctified to God by that blood. And you can be you can be sanctified in the way of a profession where you become part of a church and you're part of the people who are sanctified by the blood of Christ. You're there because Christ shed His blood, even if you don't really believe. 
but you're also, of course, truly brought into union with him through his sacrifice sanctified in the fullest way. So it's really the same either way, whether it's talking about Christ or whether it, and you know the, the original the, the original doesn't have the capitalization, so that word he could be capitalized or not. Translators have to decide that. Um, sometimes they leave it uncapitalized when it's uncertain as well. But, uh, you, you know, it, it's really the same, though, either way, whether it's Christ or, or the, the individual that's sanctified. And it is that the blood that sanctifies is counted by him as worthless, worthless by the apostate. He looks at it and he says the same way that Esau said of his birthright, what good is that to me? What use do I have of a dead man? What use do I have as someone that was crucified like this? I have no need of dead men. What good is it to me now? I hope that all of you have the highest esteem for the blood of Christ. I plead with you to consider its value, to consider its power. Here is the blood that washes away our sin. Be ashamed of how lightly you esteem it. Go to your merciful Savior and ask Him to give you a right assessment of His precious blood. An assessment that is precisely opposite to the assessment that the apostate makes when he says it's common, it's ordinary. Now we come to the third indictment of the wickedness of apostasy. Third, it involves a personal affront. Insulting the spirit of grace. It, it is the Holy Spirit who opened our eyes and brought us to the knowledge of the truth. He is the one who convicted us of our sin. He is the one who enabled us to understand how Christ satisfied for our sin. He is the one who moved our hearts to profess Him. He is the one who continues to cause the light to shine in our hearts, who keeps us, who transforms us and makes us holy. He is the one who gives us gifts to serve the Lord and to serve His people and who enables us to benefit from the gifts of our brothers and sisters. He is the one who burdens us for the lost so that we tell them of our Lord. He is the one who reveals to us the glory of God and the glory of His Son and who cultivates a greater and greater love for Him and for His truth. As we saw in Hebrews 6 some time ago, the apostate is one who was a partaker of the Holy Spirit in a certain way. And of his, he was enlightened in a certain way. He had illumination of his grace, experience of his power. He shared in it in the church. He was among those who were benefiting from the Spirit and may even God's Spirit worked in him that enabled him maybe to teach or to encourage or to edify, even though he wasn't a believer. Judas would be an example of that. But in renouncing Christ, the apostate insults the Spirit as if all that light and all that power that he participated in was either, as Owen says, diabolical delusions, delusions out of hell that are false, the things that all that, those miracles, all that truth, all that power and working diabolical delusions or fanatical misapprehensions. So just somebody got caught up in a fancy and all of that revelation of the Spirit, oh, that's just nonsense. That's what he says about the Spirit. He insults 
the spirit of grace who brought all those things to him and says, Pah, this is nothing to me. This is the sin against the Holy Spirit that will never be pardoned. It is to be shown the truth, convinced of the truth, of its value by the Spirit, and to turn against it when you know it's true, and to say it's all lies and falsehood. Paul spoke against Christ, and Paul persecuted his followers before he was converted. But he was pardoned. Why does he say? Because I did it ignorantly in an unbelief. There were others among the Jews that rejected the Christ who knew that he was the Messiah. Sent to save his people and they didn't want to come to him because it would compromise their position, they thought. So they made a deliberate choice. I will not have him. The Spirit showed them that it was true. God had not showed Paul that it was true yet. He did all of his in ignorance and unbelief. So he said, I was shown mercy. But if he'd done it deliberately like that, there would have, it would have been the sin against the Holy Spirit. These apostates know that it's true, and they deny it and reject it. Now again, see how abhorrent this sin of apostasy really is. Hate it with a holy hatred. Abhor it with an, the abhorrence that it deserves. Ask the Lord for mercy that you might love the Holy Spirit, that you might delight in, in the light that He gives you and the powerful grace that He works in you, that He imparts to you so that you might serve the Lord. What a grand thing to have the Holy Spirit, to be able to rely on Him, to know the truth, to, to give us clarity in the truth. Sometimes when I'm preparing sermons, it's so, so hard. I'm looking at the passages, just, it's just nothing there. Crying out to the Lord, and then He shows, He brings the light, shows what is, is there in a way that, that it brings conviction and, and that brings delight. What a blessed thing it is. Come, Holy Spirit, and be our guide. Come and, and, and give us light. Come and give us power. That, that's what we need from Him. He, the, the, don't insult the Spirit. No, rejoice in what He has given us. How atrocious it is then to reject Christ in His beautiful way of salvation. We saw, first of all, that it is atrocious because it leaves us without hope. We saw a second just now that it is atrocious because it is such a wicked thing to do, such a reprehensible thing to do. And now we come to the third way that rejecting Christ is atrocious. Rejecting Christ is atrocious because it will incur God's most severe vengeance. We just saw that rejecting Him is deserving. It's such a wicked thing that it's deserving of greater punishment than rejecting Moses. They rejected Moses, the ground swallowed them up, or they were, they were brought to, uh, they, they were to be killed when they, like if they murdered someone or something like that. Now we're told that it will in fact bring about a much greater punishment than that. Sometimes people look at the Old Testament and they say, oh, there's so much wrath and judgment in the Old Testament. There's more in the New Testament. This is one of the passages that talks about how much worse punishment than any of that stuff you see in the Old Testament. That was just temporary punishment. Jesus talks about the place where the worm does not die, where the fire is not quenched. It's a whole different category, a whole different story. And people get that so wrong. God's grace is elevated in Jesus Christ in a way that is, 
is remarkable, God's judgment is also elevated by Christ in a way that is, is beyond our comprehension. So let's, what, what do we see here then? Look at verse 30 and 31. We're told of a greater punishment. For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Our God is a holy God of justice. We know him, it says, as the one who says, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. He has revealed himself as the one who will not allow any wrong to stand. And it is his glory as God not to let any wrong stand. He will repay every sin exactly as it deserves. Of all people, those who know the gospel know God in this way. As a God of uncompromising vengeance. We have seen what had to be done for our salvation. That in order to save us, that he might save us and pardon us without being unjust. He had to fully punish someone else in our place as a substitute. His own son. That he might be able to justify or declare righteous people who are sinners without committing an injustice in doing so. That he could say, you're righteous to people that aren't righteous. You're okay with the law to people that were not okay with the law because he visited the punishment, the penalty on his son. We have seen that there can be with him no compromise then whatsoever of justice if we know the gospel. Okay? Jesus had to pay the full penalty. There could be no pardon unless there was a just payment for sin. We know then. We know the one who says, vengeance is mine, I will repay. We really understand that. Every sin will be fully avenged. We also know that he does not allow anyone else ultimately to carry out his vengeance. Yes, he has appointed magistrates and he uses angels and things like that to execute his wrath and judgment. He even uses wicked kings and things like that to carry out his judgments in the earth in various ways. But the ultimate judgment is with him alone, the indignation. Yes, they're used, um, you know, government, governors are used as ministers of, of the Lord, and they carry out his vengeance with the sword when they, when they punish crimes and things like that. But that's like with Moses. That's just the temporal stuff. A lot of stuff doesn't even get dealt with, and it never gets fully dealt with by magistrates in the earth. Sometimes they make mistakes. But the Lord himself is the one who will render final judgment. Why? He says, vengeance is mine. Why? Because we are not capable. We would botch it all up if it was in our hands. We are not righteous ourselves. We can't see things clearly, nor can we see what is in the heart of, of other people. But even if we could, we can't even see what's in our own heart clearly. But even if we could, we would not know how to carry out justice for those things. We know the Lord is the one who will do this. We know that vengeance belongs to him. He's reserved it to himself. He, he, will do, he will execute his vengeance on the day that he has appointed. His beauty and glory will be seen when his judgment is manifested. We will see that there is no injustice with him whatsoever. And it will be beautiful and our consciences will testify 
that it is right. We will see this clearly and we will worship him and we will adore him as we have never worshiped and adored him before. We will see more than ever how Christ had to come in order to take away our sins and what he had to bear in order to take away our sins. It will be clear to us. But here is the terrifying thing about apostasy. There is no sin that will bring about more of God's wrath and indignation than sinning willfully after we have received the knowledge of the truth. You'd better do anything else than that. The sin of knowing Christ in His salvation and then renouncing Him, trampling Him under our feet, counting the blood of the covenant by which we were sanctified an unclean thing and insulting the Spirit of grace. What could be worthy of more punishment than that? What a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the Almighty. What does it mean when it says falling into His hands? Well, it means that He takes complete control of what becomes of you. If you fall into the hands of your enemy, then you're in their power to do whatever they want. It means that He does with you exactly, in this case, what your sin deserves. With no mitigation. Because you have rejected the only way of salvation. So what do you get? You get judgment without mercy. It means that in the case of renouncing Christ, there is no mercy that you get what you deserve for rejecting so great a salvation in addition to what you deserve as a sinner to start with before you even heard of Christ or knew anything about Him. You have additional to that this heinous offense of having known Him and then rejecting Him. This is a very serious issue. We cannot begin to grasp the horror of this thing. It would be better to have been an idol worshiper who offered all of your children to Molech as a sacrifice burning on the altar who is ignorant of salvation in the way of Christ than it would be to be someone who came and said, oh yeah, this is great, I believe this, and then said, no, I don't want that anymore, I'm out of here, I, I, I want to go and pursue something else outside of Christ. It would be way better, way better to be one who sacrifices children. We need to see with a malice and contempt of rejecting so great a salvation. Let us grasp the horror of it that we might flee from the wrath to come and that we might urge others to flee from the wrath to come and that we might pray earnestly for the church to continue in the grace of God, for our brothers and sisters to continue in the grace of God, to cry out to God for them when we see them departing from the living God. I know that I grasp too little of this, that I have too little abhorrency of this sin. May the Lord grant to us a true understanding of his vindictive justice that we may abhor apostasy and that we may keep far from it. Final thoughts. We have seen the atrocity of rejecting Christ today. It is atrocious because it leaves us without hope is atrocious because it is such a wicked, reprehensible sin, and it is atrocious because of the terrifying judgment that it incurs. We are to hate this sin and to keep far from it. But let us not forget, having seen all of these things, the reason that it is so atrocious. It is so atrocious because Christ and His salvation are so excellent. It is His excellence that makes rejecting Him such an offensive thing. If His salvation were just 
an insignificant thing, it wouldn't be a big deal to reject it. It's a big deal because it is such a grand and glorious, wonderful thing. He is the one who takes sinners like us and eternally reconciles us to the Father. We have this gracious, excellent high priest who gave himself for our sins, who is exalted to God's right hand, who ever lives to make intercession for us, and who ministers to us with compassion and tenderness. We have such a high priest, as we saw in Hebrews before, eternal in the heavens. Let us cling to him with joy and hope. Let us labor to know him in all of his majesty, perfections, and grace. Let us fall into his hands with utter abandonment for salvation. Better, so much different to fall into his hands and be in his power as one voluntarily coming to him and saying, Lord, take me. Do with me what needs to be done to save me. That's what we do when we come to him for salvation. Versus falling into his hands in vengeance and wrath and indignation on the day of judgment and being under his power for judgment. There's either mercy or there's judgment. Mercy or wrath. Let us hold fast our confession. Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. Let us stir one another up. Consider one another to stir one another up to love and good works. Yes, let us fall into his hands, not for judgment, but for salvation. And let us continue in those gracious, nail-pierced hands that we come to. Who could reject such a Savior? Please stand and let's call on his name. Oh, Lord, our God, this is such a, such a terrible, wonderful passage. We thank you, Lord, that, that you are terrible and wonderful at the same time, that you bring terror. You, your awe is really the word that, Lord, we come before you with reverence and awe. And at the same time, we come to you with delight in your grace and mercy and love. We pray, O Lord, that you would help us to to see you in all of your glory and majesty, not just part of you, not just the parts that we like, but help us, Lord, to to come to love all that you are, to come to love you, because you are not divided into, we we can't portion you out like a smorgasbord that we pick the things that we want and, and push away the things that we don't, Lord. We come to you, and when we do, we will find you to be more beautiful than we ever imagined. Truly, O Lord, your beauty is seen in your justice. Your love is seen in the fact that it is a just love and that it required the sending of your only son to come and and die for our sins and that he was willing to come, that he did come and that you should do such for creatures like us that, that have nothing to commend us to you. We thank you, Lord. We praise you for what you have done. Oh, Father, give us an abhorrence of pushing Christ away. Give us a a hatred of this thing of departing from him in any way whatsoever. Father, there's not a day goes by that we don't do things that drive us apart from, from our Lord, from you, from Christ, from the Holy Spirit. But, Father, we pray that there would not be a day go by that we do not draw near 
with a full assurance of faith and hope that we come near by the blood of Christ. We pray, Lord, that every day we would do things also that would strengthen and enhance our relationship with you and that more and more we would put off the old man and we would put on the new man that's renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created us and that's renewed in holiness and righteousness to become more and more like our Savior. Father, help us. Give us this grace. Pour out your Spirit upon us that we may have the light, that we may have the grace to be able to live according to the truth that we profess. We pray, Lord, for those who do not know you, that you would work in them, that they may come to know you. We have those that we love and we know, and we pray, Father, that you would work in them. Oh, Father, open their eyes to the truth. And having opened their eyes, Lord, bring them into the truth that they might truly embrace it. Change their hearts, Lord, so that they will truly believe, so that they will receive and rest upon Christ, that they will cast themselves into his hands. Father, we thank you that those saving hands are so powerful and that we can give ourselves over to his power, that you have told us that we will be volunteers in the day of his power when that is manifested. And we pray, Father, that, that indeed, Lord, that you would bring us to that saving knowledge of Christ and that you would keep us in it. Thank you, Lord, for the way that you work, the gracious way. Father, help us then to to live in the joy and hope that the gospel gives to us and to be spreading that joy and hope to our brothers and sisters in the Lord. Thank you so much, Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated as we prepare to come to the Lord's table now. And receive the Lord's blessing in faith, looking to Him to receive what is pronounced in the benediction. And if you do, then affirm after the benediction with the confirmation of the words, Amen, so be it. Receive now that blessing. Now to Him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of His glory with exceeding joy. To God our Savior, who alone is wise, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen.